Welcome everyone to the Be Our Guest podcast, where we talk about the latest and greatest here at Brown Rudnick. Thank you uh, all for joining us. We're very excited today to join three of our partners, Sonny Bevel, David Moulton, and Robert Stark, to talk about some of the real cutting edge work that we're doing in the bankruptcy arena. First, let me ask each of you to introduce yourselves. Sonny? Hi, I am Sunny Bevel. I have been in our restructuring practice here at Brown Rednick for 20 years. Historically, my practice has focused primarily on official and ad hoc committee cases, mid-sized chapter 11s, as we'll talk about more in a little bit. That's one of the strengths of the firm well known for. Um, but especially recently, our restructuring practice has really expanded and diversified. And, and as part of that, I've also focused a lot on debtor side engagements. Recently, for example, worked on the Boston Herald case uh, where we sold the local newspaper to another media company uh, with a real focus on maximizing return for employees. Uh, and also currently working in the Puerto Rico insolvency where we represent the oversight board in connection with the restructuring of the debts of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. David Moulton, uh, say a couple words about your practice, please. Hi, my name is David Moulton. I've been at Brown Rennick for approximately 15 years or so. I'm a litigator by training and experience, former um, organized crime prosecutor who has become a bankruptcy uh, expert as well. My specialty in bankruptcy is in mass tort bankruptcies, where you find unliquidated contingent tort claims forcing uh, major companies or major institutions into insolvency. And that can be drugs, such as the new pharma case I'm involved in, sexual abuse, such as the Boy Scout case I'm involved in, wildfires, such as the PG&E case I'm involved in, or defective products, such as the Takata airbag bankruptcy that I'm involved in. Just to finish up, it's interesting that bankruptcy in connection with mass torts has provided the ability to resolve these torts on a global basis um, where um, such a resolution has been impossible either in the tort system or even legislatively. So bankruptcy has become the off-sited and off-chosen venue for uh, some of the largest mass tort cases in the country and the resolution thereof. Thanks, David. And Robert, you're our bankruptcy practice group leader. Uh, tell our audience uh, a little bit about your practice. Thanks, Bill. I've been doing this for about 26 years. Uh, my work tends to follow the traditional brown redneck trajectory in, in terms of restructuring from the commercial aspect, rather than creditors or equity stakeholders, either out of court or in court, uh, restructuring assignments. A brown redneck bankruptcy case historically, and even going forward today, is sort of where our clients find themselves, what I'll refer to as their backs to the wall. I'll give you an example, a, a debtor borrower who flouts the bargain that was cut pre-petition or cuts a quick deal with other parties and tries to jam that down our client's throats, um, or just plain says that our clients are not entitled to anything or something little when the law and the facts would say something different. Increasingly, that's um, becoming the purview of official creditors committees as the amount of secured debt kind of bolsters up in modern day capital structures. It's the unsecured creditors that are usually sitting there being fleeced in whatever deals are being presented in court. But it also can be secured, uh, secured lenders. We have many engagements 
at the highest levels of the capital structure as well, especially in cases where the company is private equity owned and management and the board want to extend out an equity option completely in derivation of the deal. And they're effectively burning value to extort value for the equity holders. But it also includes equity as well. It's a traditional brown redneck engagement sector is to represent the lowest levels of the capital structure. And as macroeconomics are so rapidly changing in the United States and internationally, first it was a collapse of the pandemic, and now it's it's a rapid turnaround anticipated a year's worth of pent-up demand. All boats are rising, and that includes equity. And so um, as equity becomes more and more likely to be in the money, we're getting regular calls to do that type of work in restructuring cases as well. Thanks, Robert. And I'm the CEO of the firm and a bankruptcy lawyer myself. The reason Sonny, David, and Robert are our guests today is because they are primary reasons why Brown Rudnick won the Law 360 Practice Group of the Year Award, which is a very big deal. It's a great recognition for one of our core practices, uh, for which we're exceptionally well-known for many years. The Practice Group of the Year Awards received more than 775 submissions from 81 law firms. We were one of only five U.S. law firms to win in this category. And I'd like to talk with each of you for just a couple of minutes as to the cases that were the basis for our win and the historical significance of those cases. Uh, David, first, uh, if you could talk a little bit about the Purdue and Boy Scout cases. In both cases, we represent creditors, and creditors in those cases happen to be tort claimants. In the case of Purdue Pharma, which is everybody knows concerns uh, the opioid Oxycontin and relates to the opioid crisis that has engulfed this nation and caused you know, terrific harm, both personal harm to families as well as economic harm. Brown Rudnick became engaged by governmental entities. And it's important to note that in the Purdue case, as opposed to other mass tort bankruptcies, governmental entities, whether they be states or whether they be municipalities or uh, Native American tribes, constitute the uh, most significant, I would say, um, creditor body because they were the ones who really pre-bankruptcy took the reins on the litigation that pushed Purdue into bankruptcy. Um, and um, most specifically through um, litigation in the federal and state courts against Purdue, but also against the Sackler family. Purdue is a private company owned by uh, the Sackler family. Uh, there's uh, lots of, been lots of uh, press and stories written about the Sackler family. Indeed, as we talk today, there's an HBO special that's airing every night on the Sackler family. But what uh, Brown Rudnick did was it represented really the organized municipalities, the organized Indian tribes. And I would say at the end of the day, one half of the United States, uh, the attorney generals of the United States of the country, in coming up with a framework of a deal that allowed Purdue to enter bankruptcy with a potential deal with the Sacklers whereby they repaid into Purdue and back to the creditors. In this case, the creditors being the governmental entities who have been really through abatement, through law enforcement, 
expenses, hospital expenses, private care ex expenses, whatever, have been fronting the bill of the opioid crisis, pushed these folks into the bankruptcy, and the Sacklers themselves had agreed to, re to return to the estate for repayment to the creditors billions of dollars of the amounts that they had received. There's also non-governmental creditors in the Purdue case, such as personal injury claimants, hospitals who've suffered loss, as well as what we call third-party payors, the insurance companies who also claim they have lost. But it's really been the government entities who've taken the lead and had really compelled the litigation by way of public nuisance cases against Purdue and the Sacklers. I think what the most important aspect of this case is, is that unlike a traditional bankruptcy case where the resolution is the payment to creditors of money for damages, for the harm they, that had been caused them in the case of traditional mass tort cases, or in commercial bankruptcies for money that is owed them, the parties, most specifically the government entity parties, got together and created what we call an abatement regime meaning whereby Purdue would be given over after um, you know, accounting for other creditors that had to be paid to the government entities who would set up a regime whereby the Purdue value, including the, the, the billions that the Sacklers were contributing, would be put into a, an abatement waterfall that would be distributed across all 50 states, as well as to the Indian tribes, um, that would um, go towards abatement of the opioid crisis, whether by treatment, by prevention, by education, by rescue drugs. It is a innovative, creative way that the bankruptcy uh, courts have been used. And we're, we're looking at hopefully a confirmation before the end of 2021 um, can be used in a way to um, serve public policy purposes. Thanks, David. Uh certainly a groundbreaking case. Uh, in Boy Scouts, we played a similar role uh, in a little different case. Tell us a couple of words about that. Yeah, Boy Scouts is, is, is a tragic situation. We represent an ad hoc committee of abuse victims, uh, survivors. It's the largest, Boy Scouts happens to be the largest sexual abuse bankruptcy or case ever. And what makes Boy Scouts so unique is that because of the cultural changes that have happened in America, as well as individual states um, rolling back statute of limitations um, and opening up uh, the tort system for sexual abuse survivors who were abused in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s to come forward, tell their claims, and sue the wrongdoers in court. The avalanche of claimants who have come forward um, put tremendous stress on Boy Scouts and forced them to seek resolution of this problem in the bankruptcy. There are 80,000 sexual abuse survivor claims that have been filed in the Boy Scout case. 80,000. We know from information that has been given out from Boy Scouts that there are at least 7,500 known predators who operated within the Boy Scouts during these decades-long period when the abuse was happening. And if you take the social science data, having 10 victims or 10 incidents per predator uh, is, is actually a conservative estimate. So the fact you have 80,000 
folks who came out for abuse that happened over decades is not all that remarkable. What we have done is we represent not an official committee, but a ad hoc committee of tort claimants representing of the 80,000, about 15,000 actual survivors. And the law firms, the private law firms, the plaintiff lawyers that represent these survivors actually in total represent about 60 to 65,000 or more of the survivors, giving our ad hoc committee not only a seat at the table, not only a blocking position, but arguably a ascertainably control position in the case. We are the party that, that needs to be talked to. One of the confounders in bankruptcy, in the Boy Scouts bankruptcy, is it resurrects all these old insurance policies that the insurers thought were long dead and buried and they didn't have to pay on. So one of the issues we're dealing with is how to treat and deal with insurers. The case is in active mediation and I really can't comment all that much on what's happening other than to say it does remain the aspirational goal of the survivors to put together a, a consensual resolution that will create a pot of billions of dollars that will be able to compensate fairly and equitably these sexual abuse survivors for the wrongs that they suffered over the decades long that Boy Scouts allowed this abuse to continue. Thanks, David. Robert, uh, you've been involved in two of the most significant cases in the last couple of years, the Chesapeake Energy and Pier 1 cases, very different cases. Could you talk about uh, Brown Reddick's role in those cases? Sure, I'd be happy to. In the Chesapeake case, we represented the official creditors committee. That case occurred last year. It's the culmination of five or six years of uh, deterioration in the oil and gas industry in the United States. Uh, dozens and dozens of bankruptcy uh, filings for oil and gas drilling and operators and midstream and other sort of suppliers. Uh, but Chesapeake was the big one. This is the great big company. It's Aubrey McClendon's massive fracking empire, 15,000 wells and five plus million acres across six states. This was the big one. Um, and at the height of the pandemic, when prior oil and gas cases were crowding the bankruptcy courts, Chesapeake reached out to its lenders, put them into a side room and said, let's cut a bankruptcy deal and resolve our issues once and for all. Those were private uh, negotiations that only involved a few select participants in the company's capital structure. And as you might imagine, those participants took all. As soon as the deal was structured, they then filed for bankruptcy about a year ago, uh, in June of last year, with a very, very aggressive schedule to get the case done. Very quick timeframes, loans that were put in place by those particular parties that were the negotiating counterparties, and they put it sort of a knife to the throat of the case. And in turn, the bankruptcy court, if you don't confirm this plan as soon as possible, Chesapeake may not make it. The problem as the bankruptcy case otherwise unfolded, is that the deal was cut at a time in which data showed the value of Chesapeake was very, very low. But as last year wore on, commodity prices rebounded, and the data showed, the data differed from the, from the value point that was otherwise the negotiated value point. On top of that, there were massive avoidance claims to be asserted against those particular negotiating counterparties. And so the bankruptcy case became a very, very hotly contested uh, contested one. 
and drew a lot of attention in academia, from the news services, all observing this uh, foray, this big fight that was culminating in, in Chesapeake because the quiet deal just seemed completely untethered to the business data. We ultimately ended up having a one month, going every single day, trial, uh, hundreds if not thousands of documentary pieces of evidence, dozens of witnesses uh, appearing in court day after day, many, many experts opining. It was fascinating work, very difficult work, and ultimately came to a very controversial outcome. But many are discussing that trial. There's lots of panel discussions, bar association discussions, and law review and business review articles coming out about that trial. It was a very significant event and a very rewarding work to have last year. The second case that you mentioned was Pier 1, where we represented the term loan lenders. Um, Pier 1 is, for those of you who have been to Pier 1, hopefully you'll, you'll agree with my characterization. It's a very large chain thousand stores, and it used to be, back in the 70s, sort of your quick mall vacation to Southeast Asia, where you could walk in and smell the smells and feel the foliage and sit in a bamboo papasan chair. It was a little bit of carting yourself to Southeast Asia, right downtown in your mall. Um, but it lost its way. It seems as though Southeast Asia, as the internet grew in popularity, didn't seem so very far away after all and it had a hard time recreating itself. It was making money and it was paying taxes, and that becomes an important point in a minute. But they brought in new management who said, we're going to recreate Pier 1 to some different experience from what you knew it to be. And it was trying to be a competitor to rather inexpensive and boxy and not terribly design-oriented furniture. And folks weren't buying it. Um, so Pier 1 lost its way and lost its profitability. Its, its um, fortunes uh, collapsed in one year uh, dramatically. And, by, and so going into 2019, the term loan lenders had sort of had enough and reached out to the company and said, listen, you don't have a path to return to profitability. You're going to default the debt. We should sit and talk about what you should be doing now. And a deal was cut that I refer to as the great exchange. The company said, listen, we believe that we're on a path to writing ourselves, to recreating or bringing Pure One back to what it used to be and getting the demographic flowing in here again. We're going to go back to that same sort of essence that, that we had long ago and get people that want to come back and buy their Papasan chairs and their candles and enjoy the experience and pick up more expensive items coming on the way out. And the exchange was this, we'll go into bankruptcy and we'll put ourselves up for sale or we'll present ourselves to the markets to see if we can finance ourselves to this outcome. If we're successful, then, um, then we'll go ahead and do that. And the lenders would have control over that by, by there being a break point. If somebody would buy us or financing would come in to yield value to us at a certain high percentage of the amount of our debt, then it was automatic the company could make the decision. But anything below that point, it would be our decision to, to, to make as to whether or not the company would continue to exist, reorganize, or would go out of business and liquidate. Um, and that deal was reached um, going right into 2020. A month later, COVID happened. Two months after that, all big box retail shut down and, and Pure One was no different. And so the deal was effectively put on ice and uh, Pier One's bankruptcy case was one of the first cases to do a very controversial thing. It went to bankruptcy court and said, 
we're going to quote-unquote mothball the entire bankruptcy case. All administrative expenses stop, all operations cease, employees go on furlough, and we'll come back in a few months' time. Hopefully, the company will be able to resuscitate. As we all know, uh, those types of, as we know from hindsight now, those types of efforts were not going to work. And in fact, Pier 1 did not come back. But something else did happen during the mothball period, which is the CARES Act. And the CARES Act did something very interesting. It allowed companies who historically did well, made money, and paid taxes, but have recently fallen due to hard, hard times caused by the virus, and they're allowed to take their recent net operating losses and carry them backwards for a tax refund so long as you pay taxes in the previous five years. Well, that fit Pure One's model. And so we were able to pull about $100 million in tax refund and add that to the liquidation value. And our term loan lenders, who going into the discussions, having suffered so much collateral deterioration from a company that was trying to recreate itself for such a lengthy period of time and had rather low expectations, ended up getting paid in full. And it was viewed, at least from our perspective, as a very successful bankruptcy case. Thanks, Robert. Sonny, uh, you've been involved in perhaps the largest case on earth over the last couple of years, the official bankruptcy of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Can you describe uh, what you've been doing in that case? Sure, absolutely. Puerto Rico is one of the largest ever municipal bankruptcy filings, if not bankruptcy filings, period. It has over $30 billion of bond debt. And it was an island that really was in crisis. Um, it had been issuing bonds in order to raise money. Its infrastructure was not performing up to par and its citizens were not getting the services that they otherwise had been getting from the island. And so as a result of that, Puerto Rico being a territory rather than a state uh, was not able to file Chapter 11 in bankruptcy. And so U.S. Congress passed uh, what we call PROMISA. Uh, it was a statute allowing Puerto Rico to file for what is akin to a municipal filing, um, incorporated much of Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code into the statute and Puerto Rico and several of its instrumentalities filed for bankruptcy protection around 2017. And we were hired after Cobra and Kim did a complete investigation into the reason for uh, Puerto Rico entering such a significant financial crisis. And we were hired through a competitive process to be special litigation counsel for the oversight board. Oversight board is essentially the statutory representative of Puerto Rico in the bankruptcy, akin to what might be a trustee in bankruptcy in a Chapter 11 case. And so we were retained to pursue and investigate potential litigation claims prior to the expiration of the statute of limitations, which was coming up in just a few short months from when we were retained. As a result of our further investigation and diligence, we filed uh, proceedings to invalidate more than $6 billion of bond indebtedness and to claw back the billions of dollars paid on account of those challenged bonds. Just to put this in perspective, it was essentially the case where we were moving to declare the bonds null and void. And so the bondholders that paid for those bonds were basically telling them what you paid for um, had no value, was worthless. And so that obviously resulted in litigation that is in the process of being resolved through uh, mediation 
and uh, hopefully uh, will be resolved as part of a planned confirmation process that's coming up in the next few months. In addition to the actions to invalidate the bonds, we filed an action against many of the professional firms for their roles in facilitating the debt issuances that resulted in harm to Puerto Rico. Um, and we do anticipate that that action is likely to be resolved as part of the plan confirmation process as well. And in addition, as you know, at Brown Rednick, we do spend a lot of our time on avoidance actions. Uh, we diligenced all of the payments that have been made by the Commonwealth and its instrumentalities to, to vendors and third parties. And as a result of that, we filed over 250 lawsuits against several thousand defendants who potentially received unlawful payments from Puerto Rico. And it was a part of a larger effort to claw back nearly $4 billion in unlawful contract and bond disbursements. As I mentioned earlier, we're at the point in the case now where marching towards what is hopefully a consensual resolution of this bankruptcy and continuing to work with the Oversight Board to um, help Puerto Rico get to a place where it can be uh, financially independent and in a place where its infrastructure can provide the necessary services to the citizens of Puerto Rico. Um, this is an unusual case for us here at Brown Rudnick. It's been a, an amazing case for helping an, an island, helping a, a group of citizens, you know, get into a better place where they can um, you know, rely on their their government and their their island to help support them. So it's been a very rewarding case to be involved in. Well, thanks, Sonny. What a fascinating case. And to be front and center in that, involving so many billions of dollars of claims and uh, hoping to position Puerto Rico to get back on its economic feet. Uh, the bottom line for Brown Runnick is that we are in the middle of some of the most high stakes work in the bankruptcy field year after year. It's incredibly exciting for Sonny, David, and Robert and the teams that we have deployed uh, for each of these clients. We attract the best work in the most competitive cities in the world because we place such a high emphasis on clients and we grow relationships with these clients because of our service to them. We are going to have an even more impactful year this year, uh, given the growth of these cases and, and the new ones on the horizon. Thanks for giving us a great behind the scenes look at your work, the well-deserved win of the Law 360 Practice Group of the Year Award to our clients and friends. Thanks for listening and being part of this episode. We look forward to having you join again soon.